Hey there, faithful ThoughtBot podcast listener. We love podcasts and having the opportunity to share our experiences through such a personal medium, and we hope you enjoy listening as much as we like creating them. For the month of December only, you can show your support for ThoughtBot and our podcast with mugs, shirts, and a limited edition knit hat. This particular shirt and mug design have never before been available outside of our own teammates and customers, and they may never be again. For the production and shipping, we are proud to partner with Social Imprints, who provides career opportunities and a living wage to people who need a second chance. So help support your favorite podcasts, provide employment opportunities for at-risk populations, and get some nifty ThoughtBot swag. Head over to ThoughtBot.com podcasts to place your order and show your support. And hey, thanks. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here today with my buddy, Derek Reimer. Hey, Derek. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Good. So I have some uh, some off-the-wall stuff this week. Cool. We'll see if we can relate it to programming and business and things like that. I think Okay. All right. Uh, so the first thing I wanted to, talk, to tell you is that I read a book that's kind of changing my life right now a little bit. Ah. Uh, it's called The Inner Game of Tennis. Okay. Have you heard of it? I don't think so. Okay. It seems to be a classic in the sports world. And it's written by a tennis pro that teaches people how to play better tennis and the Mm -hmm. things he discovered about what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And the basic gist is, his theory is, you have sort of two selves uh, when you're trying to do some sort of athletic endeavor. There's the analytical side, which says like, when I hit a backhand, I should make sure to like keep the plane of the, that the racket is traveling on very flat. Mm-hmm. And then there's this, the self, too, uh, which actually executes the actions. It's sort of like you're the physical uh, movement self that knows how mm-hmm. to move your body around. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he noticed that there seems to be this division between cells because people will like sort of yell, like chastise. Like self one will say what are you doing you idiot like keep the racket back or like use your move your feet or like lift your whatever right and he sort of came with this idea like okay there 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 seem to be these two pieces and one is actually doing the movement and the other is critiquing it through an analytical lens Mm -hmm. and what he came to realize was the more he could engage with the second self the better his students seemed to play so he started doing experiments where his his normal routine would be okay i want to teach this person how to like they're a brand new beginner let me show them how to hit. I'll, I'll describe to them how to hit a forehand and like the core components that go into making a good forehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he would sort of like talk to them for a while and discuss lots and lots and lots of points. And inevitably they would sort of try it and not be very good and feel discouraged as they did the things incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over time, he decided to try changing his approach to simply demonstrating. So he would say, okay, just watch me hit 10 forehands. And they would just and just just, just notice what I'm doing. And so he would do that. And they'd say, now you try hitting 10. And as opposed to adding any corrections as they hit them, he would just let them sort of figure it out mm-hmm. and had like tremendous results from this, like a big hmm. change. Interesting. So he's basically trying to get them to absorb the methodology just by observing instead of trying to teach their analytical mind. Is that yeah, that basically the yep. gist. That's the gist. Okay. Yep. Okay. And it's like the self that controls the body is good at watching and mimicking. Like right. we're really good at mimicry. We're not so good at break, like figuring like what are the ten components that are going to that person's forehand that make it good, and now mm-hmm. let me sl- slowly put them all together and do it myself. So is that like something to support like pair programming or something <laughs> like that? Like is that a 
Is that an analog? <laughs> I think it actually is. And that hadn't yeah. occurred to me until I was just talking about it right now. But yeah. I, I think there's probably something to that. And, and there's complicating factors, bec- or I, I don't know what to call it, but there's a lot of things you learn from impair programming that are process-based. Right. Where it's like, oh, like now I need to like just add this part of the commit or of the file to a commit or like lots of little things like how do you recover from errors or where, how do you run your tests or how do you do this or like revert that migration or all these mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. you can learn better ways of doing. And so some of that might just be like you're learning a better process, but I think also a lot of it is just you're kind of watching how someone that knows what they're doing goes about everything and thinking and moving forward. Right. Yeah. I, I remember, I bet this kind of relates to an experience I had in college too. I was a math major and I don't know, there's something special about sitting in a classroom and watching a teacher work out a problem on the board mm. as opposed to like just trying to read in a textbook um, the process for how to problem solve. Yeah. I don't know what tangible difference there is, but perhaps it has something to do with just uh, watching someone else work through the process as opposed to trying to teach yourself the process through a textbook or something. I don't know. Yeah, totally. So the one other key idea from the book is trying to not assign a judgment to everything that happens. Mm-hmm. So this pro found a lot of success in telling his students, like, don't say, I have a crappy backhand. And don't hit a backhand and say, oh, that was terrible. Just let your second self kind of notice what happened and what may have gone wrong, mm-hmm. but don't assign a value to it as good or bad or really bad or embarrassing or any of that. Just kind of view it dispassionately. It's okay to take in that input of like, okay, that shot went out and it probably went out because of this thing, but then don't say, and because of like, and that always happens to me or like, that's because my backhand sucks. And so right. those are sort of the two core ideas from that book. Mm-hmm. And so I've been playing squash. I'm learning how to play squash recently. Mm-hmm. Um, at, which is a great game, by the way, uh, and similar to tennis. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a lesson the other day, and these ideas were fresh in my head. And so I found myself getting like very calm and kind of detached from what was going on. And like mm-hmm. I, I'd had a lesson, I've had lessons with this coach before, and I, I like him a lot. But it's easy, like during a lesson, to get overwhelmed with like the details. Um, so we'd be, I would like get a shot, he'd be like great. Now do that same thing, but just like lead with your elbow a little bit more. And so. Normally, my brain would be like, okay, elbow more, elbow more, elbow more, elbow more. And, like, and then that kind of leads to, like, a, I would get tense. I'd be, like, kind of hyper-focused on this thing. And what I found is I would do the elbow thing, but I'd forget everything else. Like, it was impossible right. to integrate the new instruction into the existing stuff when yeah. I was thinking about it analytically. And so mm-hmm. this time, I just tried, I, I basically just, like, was like, okay, second self, you know that that's now a thing that we should do. And I just like emptied my mind and didn't right. think about the elbow and it worked really well. And it was, it was crazy. Like we had sort of our best rally towards the end of the lesson. Like we just, I was just hitting like a lot of really great shots better than I had before. And he was like, really good, really good. He's like, how do you feel? I was like, I'm not thinking about anything. My mind is totally empty. I yeah. feel like relaxed and blank. And it was amazing. Yeah, the human body is amazing. That muscle memory exists. You know, that's a concept. Like, I don't think your muscles actually have memory, but it's right. like somehow allowing yourself to just execute on what you know without actually thinking analytically about it. I guess people often say like that's getting in your head about something or overthinking something, right? right? Like as soon as you try to do that, then that's all you can focus on. Mm-hmm. So I play piano and uh-huh. some people are really great at sight reading. Other people are not, which is you just like take a piece of music and you try to play it. Right. 
And for a lot of people, sight reading is difficult because you're reading the notes and you're trying to, you know, instruct your fingers where to go as opposed to something that you've had practice on and you've begun to internalize it. And now you're, you both hands can move freely because they both know what to do. You know, when you're playing a song that you actually know, you're not you're not actually thinking like, okay, now I'm going to tell my left hand to hit these notes and my totally. right hand to hit these notes at the same time. You know, it's just, it's something different. Yeah. So there's sort of an analogy in there that I've used like in a blog post from seven or 10 years ago or something. Cause I also, uh, I used to play piano. I took lessons for a long time and mm-hmm. there's an experience of moving from thinking about like, so at first you're like, okay, what note is that? Okay. That's a G. Where's a G? Okay. G is right there. What? Okay. Mm-hmm. And I should hit that with my second finger. Okay. G. And then you start to get all that stuff gets faster and more automatic. So that mm-hmm. like th- that whole process then takes like, a, you know, less than a millisecond or something. And over time you move from like, what's that note? I should hit that note to hear a string of notes. And it's like, oh, what are the, what are the relationship of these notes to each other? Like, how do I make this phrase sound musical? Right. Like what's the emotion of this section of the piece? And yeah. you're complete. I, I eventually found myself like completely detached from the like the mechanical aspects of playing the notes and decoding what the music means and what that moves means to my hands, and just thinking like, what does this sound like? What does it feel like? What do I want people to feel when they hear this? Yeah, you put the part of actually hitting the notes on autopilot, and you're no longer thinking about that at all. Right. And, it's like yeah. move, moving up a level of abstraction. Right. Yeah. So I think the inner game of tennis has like a whole bunch of, I think he's put, written sequels, like the inner game of business and the inner game of whatever. Uh, I think it's turned into like a thing um, uh-huh. because I think some of the core ideas certainly are transferable. Uh, but mm-hmm. for me, it was just a really interesting experience. And so I wanted to share it. Yeah. So how do you think that might apply to your day to day? I've been kind of thinking about that. Mm-hmm. I think the lack of judgment, like applying judgment is probably one of the core pieces the lack of judgment is not to say that you're not like looking at everything and like, I can't even tell if that's good or bad. Right. You're still noticing what's happening. Like this isn't quite working or like there's a problem over here or that that worked very well, but you're not then internalizing that and like becoming the problem or like saying like, like it's like the difference between that, you know, that backhand went out and I have a terrible backhand. Right. And I think people make that jump a lot where it's like X thing didn't go well. I'm bad at X thing. Mm-hmm. And that's easy to do. I think that's like, mm-hmm. for some reason, that's very natural. We mm-hmm. tend to internalize and like personalize those kind of things. And so I haven't noticed myself, my mindset shifting yet in like a work setting in this way, but I'm kind of on the lookout for it. Yeah. Just like looking out for areas where you might be overcorrecting. Like if something didn't go well, so now you've like made that artificially more important than it needs to be because you're trying to make sure not to make that mistake again. Right. See. Yeah. yeah. Or even just the other day, I was thinking about how I want to improve the marketing for our products. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm looking to hire a person. And, and at one point, I was thinking like, oh, like, because like, I'm bad at marketing. And I was like, well, like, I don't know, like, I just sort of haven't paid a lot of attention to it. Like, I haven't gone after it and learned it and, you know, dove into it like I would other things. So like, I'm, I'm inexperienced at marketing. Uh, yeah. I'm understudied in marketing. I, I don't have a permanent truth about myself that is I am bad at marketing, though. So, right. Yeah, I think one other takeaway from this, is, which unfortunately is not like super concrete and actionable, but is just that over time, you just naturally get better at certain things just through putting in the time and the effort. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember listening to a talk by Jason Fried, I think, and I remember him saying something to the effect of over time, just building products, selling products, we've gotten good at making money. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, like, what does that actually mean to just get good at it? 
Does it mean you're better at marketing? Does it mean you're better at building products? And I think it's like, yes, yes to all, you know, like, <laughs> yep. so you kind of just, I don't know, you get a knack for spotting opportunities right. for figuring out how to execute on product, how to listen to customers, all these things. Totally. And those things yeah. are, are skills, learnable skills right. for sure. I mean, just look at right. how many people have made courses on, you know, launching your first info product or SaaS or whatever. Like that's it. Those products exist. And I think they're legitimate because you can learn these things. There's lots of lessons along the way for yep. things that, you know, usually tend to work. Right. Yeah. So highly recommend that book. I'm into it. We'll throw it. We'll throw a link. And uh, if you if you do any sort of sports at all, I think it's to, or any sort of physical activity, which hopefully you do. I think it's mm -hmm. worth it. But even if not, I, I'm suspecting I will find places to apply it in like business and programming and things like that. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Uh, maybe I'll mail it to you for Christmas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> okay. Do you have any, uh, any, any crazy things you're into or are thinking about or doing? Um, so right now I'm digging myself out of a mountain of work. Um, from mm. uh, It took 10 days off, uh, went back to California for Thanksgiving. Gotcha. So now I'm just kind of like clawing through a pile of uh, pull requests to review and questions mm. from the team and, and all that good stuff. Do you review all the pulls that go into Drip? So I still review a lot of them. And this is actually, so this is actually something that's been on my mind. And it's always, it's always really evident when coming back from, you know, taking time off, like realizing how I'm, I think I'm still too much of a bottleneck in our process because, you know, everyone just kind of runs stuff by me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that has me thinking, you know, moving forward as the team continues to grow, you know, I don't, I don't scale, you know, we have to, I have to start delegating some of those responsibilities out to other team members. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, something that we've, we've talked about a lot recently internally is like, how do we delegate the task of the gatekeeper of our code base? Like keeping an eye on, on code that's coming in and making sure that consistency is there, that bugs aren't slipping in, that, you know, ju it's just good quality code. And it's something that I feel like, you know, consistency, in my opinion, is one of the biggest hallmarks of a, of a good code base, like just to make sure you're not accruing technical debt and that it's easily understandable for new team members who are joining on and all those things. So have you found any strategies that work well for making sure code bases stay consistent and high quality when a bunch of people are contributing? Hmm. How, how big is your team at this point? So there's, let me count. Developer-wise, I mean. Yeah, there's like four or five developers. Okay. I don't think I've worked on a team bigger than about five or six developers. So okay. I'm not sure how you do it when it gets bigger than that. Yeah. I have found that it gets harder and harder as the team gets bigger. But I think the solo gatekeeper thing is certainly not going to work long term. Yeah. I guess my answer to this is have really good developers. Mm -hmm. And and if you have people that you need to like, we we review everything that goes into like master, for example. Yeah. So we always have more than one person look at it, but it doesn't. We don't have like a, a gatekeeper person that has to look at it. Right. And sometimes right. you'll have a sort of ad hoc gatekeeper person because it's like, oh hey, you're very familiar with this area, and so you might be able to spot uh, issues, uh, or I know you're great at you know these nasty SQL queries or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I, it feels like one of those things where like the command control structure of like decision maker up top, maybe with some like lieutenant decision makers and then like the grunts at the bottom, that doesn't feel like it's going to work. Yeah. And I think it's definitely more of a me problem than my team. Like we, we do have a really good team and they're awesome developers. Yeah. I guess 
when you look at one of your code bases that a bunch of people have contributed to, how does it feel like one person has written the code or can you spot like, oh, that was probably this person and that was probably that person? Like how much inconsistency is bearable or does it just kind of depend? That's interesting. I find I'm actually not a great, I'm not great at guessing who wrote what parts. Mm-hmm. So there's things where I guess the thing I'll notice is like, why did we write this like this? And I'm like, I bet this person wrote it. And I'll check. It's like, oh, somebody else. Or it was me. Um, right. And so it sounds like you're not talking about style differences. You're talking about like architectural differences. I think maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. Hmm. Like there's there's probably there's style things, which I'd probably just need to relax a little bit. And when you talk about <laughs> style, are you talking like single versus double quoted strings or different things, that other things? Um, maybe a little more detailed than that, like like the way methods are named the way they're Uh, split out length of methods yep stuff that's still pretty superficial not like not like overarching architecture of a specific of a specific subsystem but just like little micro decisions that things that may bother me or or make me feel like you know i I probably would have done this slightly differently Mm -hmm. but i know for those things i probably just need to come to grips with the fact that it's things are not always going to be exactly the way that i would have done them yeah if that makes sense yeah I mean, I think if you can point to concrete downsides of mm. the way that a thing is implemented versus the way you would have done it, then that information is, is worth sharing. It's worth yeah. distributing because ultimately you want those, if there, if, yeah, if there's a, if there's a better way, then you, that should go, you know, you want that information to travel away from you. But if it is just kind of like, well, I might've done a, and you did B, a prime, but you know, there's not really much difference between the two. I try to not make comments like that in PRs. Yeah. Cause it, it it's yeah. just kind of. It's like, yes, that's how I did it. I like it. And that's how you like it. But this is just like, you know, chocolate and vanilla. Right. Right. Too superficial to actually, you know, request changes on. I think getting to the point where, you know, probably someone, probably a developer who's just been in the code base for a month or two is maybe not at the point where they necessarily are equipped to review others code for style consistency with the rest of the code base because they're just not super familiar with the code base yet. But so what, where I'm ba- basically getting at is I think that I'm going to start delegating some of the code review aspects to a few other team members so that we're basically doing more of a peer review model where, you know, the, the guys who are primarily focusing on the back end stuff are going to review each other's code. Mm-hmm. And then the people who are working on this other part will will just kind of share the, the responsibility of review. And I guess that's more for more for sanity checking for like trying to spot any potential bugs and then just the collective understanding of the style of the code base, we can all kind of cross-check each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think getting to that point is just requiring me to overcome some of my own like desire to have the code base look the same everywhere as if one person wrote it, which I know is that's that's an ideal, I think, that is not necessarily realistic. Yeah, I think there's consistency that's worth pursuing and then consistency that's not as much worth pursuing. And yeah. the one person wrote it thing does not feel worth pursuing. Like it's it'd be beautiful it'd be great if it were easy, uh, but it yeah. sounds like it's not. But we do try to stay consistent within a code base with things like certain ways of like structuring. There's a whole bunch of different ways you can like lay out a set of uh, a file of RSpec tests, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we try to keep consistent with like okay what's already in this file how has it been done already let's right. stay or like how do we do it across the code base or over here we did it this way and that that kind of consistency i think is good um and it's less about like did one person write this it's more just like yeah there's seven ways to do it but let, let's try to stick to one in this code base so i think right. that's worth tracking down like paying attention to do you guys tend to document something like that or is it just kind of or is the instruction like just look at what's there and kind of emulate yeah that's that's sort of the 
the go-to. Like if I'm like making a new file of tests, I will often open up an old one and be like, okay, how we? Oh, that's right. How's this this project do this one? Okay, we do the describe with nested this and blah blah blah. Right. So. So I think my fear, my one fear with that is that we may end up with like a broken window syndrome where someone happens to open a file that is like maybe it's old style or and we haven't gone back to like get some of our older test files to be consistent with the new way that we're doing mm. it but someone happens to open up an old one and now we're like proliferating this old style of something yeah we do have a style guide uh that lays out rules at that level yeah it's like oh you know use this kind of describe syntax don't use this kind of thing mm-hmm. which and it's open source you, people can check it out and so that's our default answer to those questions yeah but in a project that already is doing it a different way we won't just like start doing the new way Sure. Um, which is kind of, I think is a reasonable way to do it, I guess. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, we made a new style rule. Okay, go update all these files. Like, nah, it doesn't seem like a good use of time. No, no. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, that's that's just something that's been on my mind. Like, I want to get to the point where I can, where I go on vacation and I come back and there's not a mountain of work. Like, the team has, has remained kind of self-sufficient. It's not that, you know, yeah. critical bug fixes get, get shipped while I'm gone. It's not like we're, you know, totally at a standstill or anything. But um, I still think... I'm just reminded that I'm probably too much of a bottleneck on certain things. Mm. So, yeah, I think that that's a good metric to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. It's like your post vacation, like waiting workload. Yeah. How many inboxes are how full when you right. get back? Exactly. Yeah. And that speaks to what my day to day is like. Sometimes I don't even realize how chopped up my day is because I'm, I'm still doing too many things, you know? Yeah. So sometimes I'm not, I'm not getting those long quality stretches of uninterrupted time to build stuff because yeah. my day is too chopped up. Mm-hmm. Having recently uh, delegated three of my inboxes in the form of customer support, I can say it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like having, having let go of that is just, has been great. Yeah. How's that going by the way? You, you have a, a support person who started, right? Exactly. Yeah. Should have done that like three years ago, probably. Yeah. 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 People are getting answers quickly. He's very personable. Uh, mm-hmm. He's working on building out our knowledge bases and switching us mm-hmm. to like a proper uh, help desk system. And like, he's like, oh, do support requests sometimes come in via Twitter? I was like, oh yeah, I guess they do. He's like, okay, cool. I'll watch that too. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> And then like, we, one of, we, I got an email like, oh, like there, there's a blog comment that's awaiting moderation. And I was like, oh yeah, I usually just like go through and like catch those up every so often. He's like, I'll do that. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess you could do that. Right. It, it was just this, like, I don't know. I, I My sense of calm has gone up and yeah interruptions have gone way down yeah and it's like people are getting good answers quickly and he's early so he's like he has to forward a lot of stuff on to us still mm-hmm. or it's like mm-hmm. do we do this or like what what's our reasonable response here but he's, he's building out docs like with those answers so it's like okay yeah. like now that answer lives somewhere as opposed to my head and next time I, I won't have to answer that myself yeah i feel like this will pay for itself honestly oh in, yeah in terms of happier customers and also like developer productivity or our productivity. Oh, for sure. So we occasionally get like a disputed charge through Stripe, you know, uh-huh. and so Stripe will email you saying, hey, you have a dispute sitting in here, you know, and you basically the way to resolve it is to attach some kind of documentation proving that the charge is valid or like just letting it go, depending on whether you want to whether you feel it's worth fighting or not. And um, those are just kind of those annoying things. It's like I really should address this, but do I really have time to carve out to do this right and one day like we noticed that we weren't seeing these quite as often and they were getting sent to the support inbox and we discovered that 
Andy, our support guy, was just like taking care of him. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, I've been logging in and handling all these disputes, you know, just like, yeah, I generate the receipt and attach it and upload it. And it takes 10 minutes or whatever. But just started taking care of it. It's beautiful. It's like, ah, oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I actually had a very a, a similar thought like laying in bed last night, which is that we have dunning emails that go out automatically to try to like rescue people whose accounts have gone delinquent and mm -hmm. sometimes they work and sometimes they don't and i was like uh maybe i should like there's a lot of these over on hound right now maybe i should like email a couple of these people it's like wait a minute this is another thing i can give micah and just mm -hmm. and just like ah, it's wonderful yeah so yeah turns out like delegation it's a thing it works totally <laughs> yeah but and yeah i really honestly like it took like a couple days before i was like this i cannot believe i waited so long to do this Mm -hmm. So now I, I feel like I've hopefully I've learned that lesson. Yeah, that's cool. There's a quote from Henry, Henry Ford that's relevant to this that I like, which is, if you need a machine and don't buy it, then you will ultimately find that you have paid for it and don't have it. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And that was that was definitely us on customer support mm -hmm. for sure. So uh, super happy about that. Cool. Glad you hear that's working out. Yeah. So next step for me is to do it again, basically. Uh, which mm -hmm. is uh, I'm looking for a marketing person slash growth person. I'm still trying to find out what the cool kids call that. <laughs> I'm like sensitive to the fact that like there are developer postings that ask for like a rock star or a ninja or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it's Let's like go a little over the top. <laughs> right. And so it's like, oh, man, is growth hacker that term? And I don't realize it because I'm not in the industry. So I've been asking people. I'm trying, I've, been, yeah. I've basically been polling marketing types that I know. I mean, like, what do you think? Like, should I call this a growth person? Should I call this a head of marketing? Like, what? Is there any consensus so far? I'm actually kind of curious. Like, I, I know growth hacking became like a, a really popular thing to say, but I, I have a sense that's just a marketing person. But <laughs> yeah. what's your consensus? <laughs> so the consensus of people I've talked to seems to be that like growth is a reasonable way to describe it, but mm -hmm. that it seems to be that growth is a slightly different thing than marketing at least just in some people's minds. So marketing mm -hmm. is basically driving people into the top of a funnel and growth is potentially involved in any phase of the funnel. Okay. So it's like, oh, we're going to focus on retention. And that's something a marketing person probably wouldn't do. They're probably only interested in driving stuff to the top, like acquisition. So maybe a marketing person is, is slightly more specialized yeah. field and growth kind of is a superset of marketing. Yeah. That sounds about yeah. right. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but we'll see. I'm going to talk to one or two more people before I like decide on what this title should be. Right. Um, but I'm actually really close to done with a job description. At least have a like a first draft of it. It's very wordy, which is like very me. It's like mm -hmm. here's the background, here's the situation, here's like here's the situation, here are the challenges, here are the advantages, here's the future, here's you. So if people like to read a lot, I think they will like this. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll see. We'll see if it's good uh, person bait. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Long form, long form copy is underrated. I think it, uh, yeah, it I works. A lot I'd rather put too much information out there and mm -hmm. weed out people early, mm -hmm. you know, like have people read and be like, oh yeah, that's not for me. Like this, this is not the kind of situation then like make it look enticing and short and be like, oh, maybe this is good. And then find out later it's not good. Yeah. Um, so by the time this airs, we should have this, this should be live. And so, uh, we'll link to that. If, if you are a great growth slash marketing person slash hacker slash whatever, <laughs> uh, or no one, uh, please check it out. Sweet. So I'm looking to basically make this hire quickly, ideally. Mm -hmm. I basically have two priorities. One is this because, hey, let's let's get our marketing together. And the other is budgeting, forecasting, setting KPIs for the first quarter of next year. Yeah. Do you have a sense for what your um, interview process is going to look like? Because like, I know we, we've done a bit of hiring and 
seems to always take more time than we anticipate, yeah. you know, just kind of weeding through resumes, uh, yep. doing meetings and stuff. So yeah, yep. do you have a sense? Yes. So I have a sense and I'm hoping to get more of a sense. So Brian Cassell, who we've talked about a couple times, develops a test for every position that he's going to hire for mm-hmm. some sort of standardized thing that people are going to do that will give him something to like a, a real work sample basically so he can compare yep. and yep. i think i like that approach and i've asked a couple marketing people if they if that's reasonable and they said it was so i think what i'll do for the people who send in uh, appealing seeming applications will be to ask them something like pick one of the product landing pages and write a paragraph or two about what kind of changes you might want to make or test uh, and why yeah um, something along those lines something that's not gonna take them forever but will give me like a a writing sample because i think like i can i value good writing and like actually especially for this position good writing will be important oh totally so it'll be uh, a good thing for that and also just to see like what their sense of to see if they have sensible ideas about the market because like they have to sort of understand the developer market a little bit uh see if they say like you know i would like let's do this versus let's test this i think would be kind of an interesting thing yeah uh, so that's that's my rough idea right now okay and I'm, I'm sort of hoping people will do things to stand out a little bit. Like that's going to be kind of the standardized test, but I'm curious to see like what people come up with. Because like, to me, mm-hmm. this is the ultimate marketing challenge is marketing yourself, right? So it's like if, right. if you write a bad email, it's a, that's an instant reject. Yeah. Because it's like, you're, you're like, this is high stakes marketing right now. Right. And, if, and you know yourself better than anything. And so if you can't like even get peak my interest for this product, like it's, that's clearly not a thing that's worth spending more time on. Yeah, I've heard stories of like folks applying for a marketing position, but then like not even having any knowledge of the products that they're applying to be the marketer for. And it's like, you should probably at least spend a few minutes if you're applying for this position, you spend a few minutes understanding what products you're going to be marketing if you were given this position, you know, so looking for them to go the extra mile or even just, you know, 10 feet. (laughs) Uh Yep, (laughs) It's kind of a a good pre-qualifier, I guess. Yep, totally. So that's what's up with me. Those are my those are my two things. I'm actually I, I feel good because my priority list is small right now, mm-hmm. and that's that feels like a wonderful luxury. It's like okay, these are the two important things. Yeah. If those things need work, they they will happen immediately and interrupt other things, and the rest is like kind of can fit in around, around the edges. And that just it right. feels, feels good to know those things. Yeah. Focus. 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 Yeah. <laughs> totally. Uh, anything else uh, moving and shaking in your world? Um, I'm sure I'll have more to report next time. Okay. Um, you've been out. Yeah, I've been out. So so as soon as I claw through it, uh, get back on track on some of our large initiatives. Cool. So um, I'll throw out one more. I'll throw out a drip-related thing for you. Okay. Which is that, uh, so I started a newsletter, a personal newsletter, uh, mm-hmm. to send out you know my blog posts and other things like that. And I signed up for the service called Drip uh, to manage okay. that. Uh, and it's great. It's good. And I was driving people to like a slash newsletter page uh-huh. uh, and like having like an embedded sort of sign-up form there. And then just for the heck of it, I was like, and I also had like a call to action at the end of the blog posts, a very subtle one, which is like, by the way, if you want, you can join my newsletter and was getting like, you know, small amounts of opt-ins here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was like, let me just go ahead and try the widget thing. And so I threw the widget on my blog and my personal site and you know what? It works. <laughs> Suddenly <laughs> awesome. it's like converting like way more visitors into email subscribers. Boom. That's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, duh. Like, yeah, turns out like <laughs> doing this works a lot better. And I, I don't have it popping up because honestly, I, I hate when things pop up. If I'm reading yeah. a blog post and a thing pops over, it like kind of F you. Uh, and so mm-hmm. it just sits down there subtly. And it's like, hey, 
And there's like, I have like a little teaser on it that I think is compelling to get people to open it. Uh, and I won't share what that is. If you want to find out, you gotta go look at it. Ah. Um, but it works. And like, I'm getting like something like 3% or like a little bit over 3% of uh, visitors are converting as subscribers. Nice. Which, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. I, f- I feel pretty decent about for like a first pass. Like it took me, you know, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So kudos to you on uh, a good product. Oh, thank you, sir. Yeah. And so my next thing I'm doing, I, I want to, I'm trying to set this up into like a semi automated flywheel type thing. So like I'm, I'm building out a welcome sequence, which I don't, I'm trying to make it like a decent welcome sequence. I, I, I sign up for some people's newsletters and like, I don't like that it feels inorganic. Yeah. Like it's like I get months of automated emails before like I even see like a real thing they wrote recently. And mm-hmm. so I want it to be short, but it's nice because like, okay, someone signs up and they at least immediately get one email from me, which is like, here are four great things that I've done in the past. Like here are my like maybe four greatest hits. So you'll, sure. you'll probably like these things. But I think I'm also going to test out uh, Meet Edgar or Edgar, I okay. guess, you know, Laura mm-hmm. Roder's thing. Yeah, which, yeah. Uh, so like building a library of tweets to interesting things that will go out semi-regularly, but infrequently. Because mm-hmm. I've, again, I've, I've seen people use that like a lot like five posts a day or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or they have a library that's too small. And so it's like, I can see the repeats. I remember the last time you tweeted this, it was four days ago or six days ago or whatever. Right. Uh, and I've, right. I've complained to people in the past about that. Uh, and so I want to try to not be that person. So keeping it really infrequent. But the goal is sort of like to create these things that kind of run on their own. And those tweets go out, which generates visitors, which creates email subscribers, which get emails on my good stuff. And then later mm-hmm. get manually written things by me trying to just yeah. build this into a functioning funnel basically yeah yeah oh, that so. sounds cool and have you have you pl- toyed around with workflows at all yet in drip i have a little bit i don't know what to use them for yeah it sounds like i mean your use case is a pretty straightforward like yeah newsletter follow-up sequence type use case but yeah you might find if you if you start being able to figure out ways to segment your list like this person's interested in business this person's yeah. interested in in software development you know then i could see you uh, potentially using some workflows to facilitate uh, catered content based on interest or something like totally. that. Totally. Have you seen what like Brennan Dunn's doing with this? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that times to the hundredth power. Yeah. But even the simple stuff, yeah, it does sound good because I am sort of pitching, like my interests are varied and like some people are interested in some of the things I'm, I'm interested in, but not all of them. So it's like right. maybe you're just interested in the programming stuff. And that, yeah. like, that's a lot of my audience. But some of my audience is the entrepreneurial type people that want to start, you know, their own SaaS. Yeah, so you could potentially have like two content funnels, one that's just software stuff, one that's just business, and then, you know, you could also send interleave both or something like that. Yeah, yeah. totally. To your automated marketing credit, you are sending like I've, I've been receiving things like here's a guide to drip workflows. Here's a here's a bunch <laughs> of videos on to do this like so it's it's my own uh, lack of engagement that has me not bumping into the workflow stuff, but I think it's mostly just like I'm not ready for it yet. Yeah. I don't yeah. have the sophisticated needs. And that's cool. It's kind of something that people graduate into gradually. You know, there's no need to overcomplicate things right away. But yep. you may find that like, hey, it'd be nice if I could do this. And then all of a sudden, boom, workflows is the right tool to use for the job. So, yep. Yep. yeah. Cool. Well, I'll let you know when I bump into that. Oh, cool. Cool. So um, I think that's uh, that's it for me. All right. Me too. Cool. It's good talking to you. Yeah, you too, man. Yeah. Welcome back to the world of work. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be back. Awesome. Today's show was produced and edited by The Land Before Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 221. Thanks for listening.